Let's do it. Main man. Main man. Main man. Main man. Main man. All the people that were working for Main Man were unusual. We were loud, ugly Americans, basically. Main Man, an interesting story, a very entertaining story, a very long, wonderful adventure. Hello and welcome to episode 62 in our series exploring the history of Main Man, the management rights company founded by entrepreneur Tony DeFries in the 70s, who worked with legendary artists like John Mellencamp, Mott the Hoople, Dana Gillespie, Mick Rolfs, Lou Reed, Marianne Faithful, Iggy Pop, and this guy. Hi, I'm David Robert Jones, named David Bowie. In this episode, we're marking the 50th anniversary of the release of Bowie's seminal Aladdin Sane with an examination of the album's iconic artwork. And the best person to tell us the full behind-the-scenes story of the creation of that 1973 masterpiece is Chris Duffy the son of photographer Brian Duffy, who worked with Bowie many times in his career. Chris oversees the Duffy Archive, curating several amazing exhibitions this year, including the Aladdin Sane 50th anniversary celebrations at the South Bank in London and the very impressive Bowie taken by Duffy, currently in Madrid. At the Duffy Archive office in London, Chris began our chat by explaining how Duffy first came to work with David Bowie and Tony DeFries. Duffy had uh, worked continually through the 60s uh, across the board. He'd been a Vogue photographer uh, from the late 50s. He left Vogue in 62 and set up his own studio. Um, He chronicled across the board uh, the zeitgeist of uh, what was going on people like Michael Caine and uh, Vidal Sassoon, Mary Quant, that whole 60s explosion. But he was also very involved in fashion. He'd gone to St. Martin's Art School um, initially uh, on a painting course, but realised that there were so many amazing contemporaries that he jumped over to dress design. So um, when he uh, moved into fashion photography he had an innate understanding of uh, how to make a garment look good so he was a top fashion photographer and I think in the 60s photographers were very broad in their approach today because it's such a crowded space photographers end up being uh, for example a food photographer but then what kind of food photographer well I'll do fruits but then okay well someone's doing mangoes and kiwis I'll do oranges and bananas so but in those days you were a, a general practitioner so Duffy was a fashion photographer he was also uh, very clever technically so he moved into advertising uh, continued with fashion he shot two Pirelli calendars uh, portraits he was he was right across the board but In 1967, I think, he went to see a play in the East End with Bailey, put together by a lady called Joan Littlewood called Oh, What a Lovely War. And he went and saw the play, and he'd had a a fascination with the First World War. He'd read everything possible on it. And he saw the play, which essentially was put together through a series of poems that were sent back by soldiers. And Joan let the actors really construct the narrative on it. And Duffy said to Bailey, this would make a fantastic film, let's buy the rights in it. So they went ahead to try and buy the rights. Bailey bailed out and Duffy connected with an old St. Martin's friend, Len Dayton, and they set up a production company called Dayton Duffy. Their first film was... Only When I Laugh, and then they moved on to the production of Oh, What a Lovely War. 
it was a difficult experience for Duffy because being a photographer, he'd been in control of everything. Obviously, you own your own cameras, you focus your own cameras, you do the production. But the film industry at that point, which was unionised, and uh, the union was the ACCT, would not let Duffy do a lot of things that he wanted to. That was a two-year period, and by 1969, he decided that he would go back to photography. But certain things had changed. Uh, we, we were moving towards the 70s, and there was a change in style and direction, and uh, the budgets were starting to come down a little bit because there was a lot of money thrown around in the, in, in, in the 60s. And model agencies, models had started to put their rates up, and photographers were getting very anxious about the fact that models were getting more than photography, photographers. Having gone through the process of making and being involved with the unions, the ACCT, Duffy thought that it would be an idea that you could get photographers to become a subdivision of the ACCT and, and unionise them, thereby guaranteeing their rates. At this point, uh, there was an association created called AFAP, which was the Association of Editorial and Advertising Photographers, I think it was, AFAP. And Duffy got called into several meetings to, to discuss this. And at this point, he'd met Tony DeFries. Tony had uh, trained to be uh, a solicitor, and uh, Duffy and he got on pretty well. And Duffy thought that his skill set would help move this idea forward of unionising photographers. In the end, uh, AFAP didn't want to go that way. Duffy and Tony parted and didn't speak for a while, and then out of the blue, uh, Tony called Duffy and said, I've got an artist, I'm representing artists, I'd, I'd like you to do some pictures. So that was the first introduction to David, which was, uh, and also at the same time, Tony had a, a world plan for David, but he needed to get the right photographer. So concurrently, he had approached Sakita, he'd approached David Bailey, and he and Duffy, and got them all to, to shoot David in the same outfit, and basically just to see how they gelled, what the chemistry was going to be. As it turned out, the chemistry was best with Duffy. And so those initial pictures in the Freddie Beretti outfit that Duffy shot were really just purely promotional test pictures. But they're an interesting insight into where David was about to move. And of course, at that time, he wasn't a major star. He was still on, on the edges of becoming a, a superstar. So when it came to uh, executing De Vries's master plan, Tony called Duffy and said, uh, I want you to shoot the next album cover. At this point, Duffy had actually formed a company called Duffy Design Concepts because he'd become sort of a little disillusioned with shooting material and giving it over to clients and then, as he saw it, wrecking his, his pictures in layout and design. So he wanted to have complete control on the concept. Tony loved that. That was perfect. And so when David came to... Duffy to talk about the the session Duffy said what's the what's the new album called and David said a lad insane and Duffy interpreted that as a lad insane and then consequently chose the typeface from Conway's 
I think the typeface is called Cristal, a very rarely used typeface, quite unique for that uh, album cover. It was perfect. But he put a little Aladdin's lamp on the eye as well, which just bonded it all together. David, as we know, worked, had the ability to identify talents and harness their energy and their creativity and throw something at them that he knew that they would come up with something different than he would. And I think that was their connection. They both had a a deep knowledge of art and design and history. Duffy was incredibly bright, incredibly intellectual. And I think they just gelled on on that level. And uh, DeFries knew uh, Duffy's abilities and capabilities. He he was already a world-famous photographer at that point. And so the, the, the mix was perfect for them. The session itself, I think, was put together very quickly. And it was, I think they had about two weeks or a week and a half to, 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 to shoot the session. And Duffy initially, although they hadn't completely locked in the idea of what the album was going to be, it was always um, David's main um, thrust that there should be a flash in there. And the flash, David had really lifted from Elvis. Elvis had, had um, taken this group, Templars of the um, Christian Brotherhood, who fought anti-Semitism and uh, racism. And he'd used the acronym TCB, taking care of business, and then added on in a flash, and if you look at pictures of his uh, private jet, he's got a flash on the tailpiece. Uh, he had pendants made for his musicians. Um, he had a signet with the flash on. And David had really lifted the, the flash idea from Elvis. And if you look at pre-Aladdin Sane, and in the background there is a flash, uh, sometimes on the drum set, sometimes projected on the background. It's not the Aladdin Sane flash, in essence, but it is... Uh, the form of a flash that was in the end you know for Duffy to interpret on the album sleeve of how we're going to use this flash the shoot was set up on a Saturday and by Wednesday Duffy still hadn't got a makeup artist for the shoot but he'd been working or he was working on a an advertorial shoot uh, for Revlon and the makeup artist was a guy called Pierre Laroche who worked behind the counter in, in Selfridges for Revlon. And uh, Duffy's initial choice for the session was a lady called Barbara Daly. Remember, at that point, there was not a lot of makeup artists about like there are now. But Barbara was busy and she couldn't do it. So Duffy said to Pierre, What are you doing Saturday? Pierre said nothing. He said, I need a makeup artist. And so that's how Pierre Laroche became involved. On the day of the shoot they had big drawing pads with flashes they were playing with different ideas on how to use this and uh, we had a rice cooker in the kitchen that Duffy's mother had given him my grandma made by National Panasonic and it had a small little emblem with a red and blue flash well of course the the flash idea had already been accepted but Duffy presented this to, to David and said is that the kind of colour scheme? Is that the kind of idea we should go with? And, and David agreed that the colour scheme was great. And so Pierre started to put a small little tattoo of a flash on David's cheek. 
David had used those kind of emblems. I think he had a... Um, in the Ziggy period, he had a little tattoo with an anchor on, on his face. Anyway, Pierre had started to put this on, and, and, and Duffy was very hands-on in the whole session. I mean, he, he didn't just walk away. And he said to Pierre, no, take that off. That's not right. That's not what I want. And he took a red makeup lipstick out of Pierre's box and physically drew the outline right across David's face and then said to him, fill that in. I think there's been lots of different stories of, of, of how the session and how the flash came about, but that is from the horse's mouth. And uh, Francis Newman, who was on the session, who was there, who assisted Duffy, um, has got the same story. So, you know, it would be nice to actually get the real story out there rather than all these other interpretations. So that's how the flash came about. And that, in essence, was the only time that that was ever put on David's face. It was too complex to use on, on uh, touring or gigs. So it, it really was just a one-off. Of course, then that moved from a straight photograph into being airbrushed by a guy called Philip Castle. Duffy had worked the previous year on the 73 Pirelli calendar. Of course, it was produced in 72. And there was a series of illustrations that the British artist Alan Jones had put together, which were to be photographed by Duffy. And then some of them were airbrushed by Philip Castle. And if you look at the original, I think, I'm not sure how many were produced, the original gatefold of Aladdin saying, I don't know if it was 5,000 or 10,000, but the original gatefold with the full length of David with his airbrushed silver body was really taken directly from the 73 Pirelli calendar. There's a picture where you will see a girl airbrushed in black standing in, in, in a very similar position. Of course, Tony had wanted... His, his, his idea, concept, was that he wanted to make this session as expensive as possible so that he would lock RCA into committing to David. So... When Duffy said, why don't we use the uh, airbrush technique, Tony DeFries said, is it expensive? Duffy said, yeah. He said, fantastic, let's go that way. To execute the airbrush technique, they also used um, a now defunct system which of printing called dye transfer, which was incredibly expensive. Tony loved that. That was expensive. Duffy went to the most expensive typesetters, Conway's. He loved that. So ultimately making the whole experience very expensive. Once RCA were locked into it, having spent all this money, they'd have to, he felt that they would have to promote Bowie. They wouldn't just drop him. And of course, when they went to America, the, 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 the same idea um, continued. I mean, they booked into the Beverly Hills Hotel. They stayed there for, I don't know, three or four weeks, all top class limousines, food all on RCA's bill. I mean, RCA was getting racked up to the neck with 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 costs. So that was that was that was Tony's idea really, which Duffy thought was brilliant. And he of course went along with it. It was perfect timing again because he just started Duffy design concepts. He had complete control on the whole concept. And so that's how it came about. But at that time I was I was living at home. I was 17 and 
I'd been working in a photographic lab, uh, which was pretty mundane. I, I, up until that point, I mean, I knew my dad was a famous photographer, but I didn't have that much interest in it. But when I started working in the photographic lab, which was a fairly straightforward job of taking film, putting it in the darkroom on this machine, uh, you put them on racks and it's self-processed. It came out the other end of the dryer process and I used to cut it up and put it in plastic sleeves. And I became interested in not the process of uh, processing film, but the imagery, what was on the pictures. And I, so I thought, well, natural... Um, extension of that is to work for a photographer so I asked my dad you know can I have a job he already had two photographer um, assistants and he said no and I hounded and hounded and finally I did get to work for him but just before that point on a Sunday Duffy always used to play he used to get records from record companies every month a sack of them would turn up and um, he had this uh, love of playing records on a Sunday morning as loud as possible in the front room I came down the stairs and on his turntable was Ziggy Stardust. And I stopped and listened. I thought, wow, that's cool. And I said to him, "Who, who's that? And he said, it's a guy called David Bowie. Now, you have to remember, it's kind of difficult when your dad is playing the sort of music that you would listen to because every generation, you know, revolts against the, 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 its, its parents, an older generation. I said, that's fantastic. He said, yeah, I'm doing his next album cover. Do you want to meet him? And I said, yeah, I'd love to. He said, we'll be at Trident Studios next Tuesday at 7 o'clock. I went down to Trident. I'd never been there before. It's in a little alleyway between Wardour Street and Dean Street. I knocked on the door. Uh, the tape-op let me in. And I said, I've come down to see Duffy. He said, they're in there, pointing to the door. I knocked on the door. The door opened. And Bowie opened the door. And he looked me up and down and he said, who are you? I said, oh, uh, I'm Chris, Duffy's son. He said, Duffy's son? I said, yeah. He said, your father is a lunatic. Come in, come in. And I walked in and Ken Scott was on the mixing desk. There was a, a, a big sofa over in the corner. I went and sat down and through the glass windows, Mick Ronson had a set of headphones on and he was doing the overdubs for Let's Spend the Night Together. And of course, as they do in recording studios, they rewind it and do another take and it was incredibly loud I remember so every time I listen to that track let's spend the night together I it just zooms me back to that moment in time it was it was uh, extraordinary to kind of be there at, at, at that time from that point David started coming around for dinner a black limo would pull up outside and David would come in and uh, they would take off on on dialogue and conversation and Duffy was always very contentious he'd say something to be provocative but I think David loved that. They they kind of had uh, a sort of unique level that they talked on and worked on. And then, of course, the American tour took off and uh, David was gone. What I failed to tell you was, in terms of the album cover, the addition that Duffy made to it was the water emblem on his collarbone. We had... There was four of us kids, and my mum was always running up and down to the studio, supplying lunches and helping out there. So we had an au pair called Sally Arnold. And Sally left us, and she went to work for the Jaggers. But she came back to see us, and she had this little brooch on with the Rolling Stones' tongue and lips. 
designed by John Pash. And Duffy was fascinated with that. He said, that's fantastic. Sally gave it to him. She said, I can get another one. And we've, we've, we've still got the original one in, in, in the archive. And Duffy loved the idea that you could, you could utilize an emblem like that and make it jewelry and merchandising. So the water emblem on David's collarbone was initially going to be, his idea was to be able to use the same idea as the John Pash brooch to create some jewellery out of it. For whatever reason, it, it, it never happened. Probably because the flash was such a dominant element in the, in the album cover that a lot of people wouldn't really understand what the water symbol was if you created a piece of jewellery out of that. You'd always have to have the flash in it somehow. So possibly that's why it never happened. But it was inspired by the, the John Pash. Philip Castle, who'd done the airbrushing on the body, and if you look at the album cover shoulders, they're all whited out. And in fact, the original picture, there's only one original print, which is, I call it the mothership, uh, which every single image around the world has come from this one print, which was in the David Bowie's V&A show that toured. If you look closely, the eyelashes have also been touched up. They've been accentuated. Also, on the flash, it doesn't line up on the actual transparencies, and Philip has just kind of realigned it so it works perfectly on, on the face. You don't see it when you stand back from, from, from the picture, but um, it has been slightly manipulated. But Philip did the airbrushing on the print of the watermark, but that was under Duffy's instruction. And that, you know, there's different views on what that was about. I think David had, was, his idea of the flash was so dominant that Duffy wanted to put his stamp on it. In a later interview with David in Rolling Stone, I think he, he talks about Duffy just adding that element on there to, to make his own kind of mark on the album cover but it's surreal i always think it being water it uh, denotes kind of emotion it's a phallic symbol as well denoting sexuality so there's a lot of kind of layered elements within that and of course the picture itself was very brave coming out of the 60s into the early 70s that that was kind of shocking to a uh, uh, a lot of parents for a younger generation, it was it was it was quite a brave image, and I think that needs to be put in context that it was such a shocking image. We take it for granted now when 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 we look at it. Funnily enough, we had an exhibition in uh, L.A. and we had a huge print of the classic album shot, and we had these riggers from New York putting it up, and they stood back, and they went, "Yeah, nice, nice, yeah, nice, nice Photoshop work on that," and they said. That was taken in 1973. There were no computers. And they went, oh, God. But it, it just kind of showed that it still has a modernity to it. It's endured the test of time after all this period. It's become uh, an icon. Because most Bowie fans have spent a long time closely looking at the shots from your archive that Duffy shot that day, I'm curious to know why you think he chose the image with David's eyes closed. I think there's a, an inherent, when you're a photographer... I worked with Duffy and I became a photographer. You very quickly, when you're shooting a lot, are able to look at a series of pictures and hone in in exactly what you want. I think you already know what you were after and you can discard 
a lot of pictures very quickly and go straight in on it. I think it, it had that magic of being uh, like a kabuki death mask. It was it brought together everything, all the elements of music, theatre, design. It. I, I, I mean, I wasn't there, but knowing Duffy, I think he probably just would have seen that as the most powerful image in the two or three roles that he, he, he shot, that that would be it. It said everything. And, of course, The Eyes Closed for so long was the Aladdin Sane image until 2011, and Kevin Can came to me, and he called me up, and he said, I'm putting a book to, together called Any Day Now, which is David's biography up until... Uh, or encyclopedia, really, up until 73, and I'd love to include the Aladdin Sane. Can I come and see what material you've got? So Kevin turned up at the studio, and I pulled out the original transparencies, and his eyes came out on organ stops. He went, oh, my God, you've got one, you've got material with David's eyes open. And I said, yeah. He said, this has never been seen before. I said, nope. And so Kevin really was responsible for revealing that picture, which the V&A then picked up on. And so the Aladdin Sane story had a second wind. And some people now actually refer to the Eyes Open as the album cover because they've seen it so much. But I think it's really interesting. It just, and again, time after all that period to, to, to reveal that just was fantastic. To, to see a new way of, of, of uh, or experiencing the next picture off the, off, off the roll or another picture off the roll. Aladdin Sane is one of those classic covers that really defines that period in rock history when the album was a work of art. And all the elements, the artist's aesthetic, their music, lyrics and the cover itself combine to create a truly immersive experience which you tend to lose with today's digitally created streaming content. But it's still a thrill to take the time to enjoy the full tactile experience of taking an LP out of its sleeve and putting it on a turntable. I think that the technology has has changed that experience because, as you say, when you had an album cover, it was tactile. You could open it up. The record was 20, you know, one side was about 20 minutes. You'd put it on, you'd listen to it. Meanwhile, going through the, if you had a song sheet, you'd, as you say, discuss the visuals that are on there. It was a very tactile experience. And again, as you say, with downloads, we're now, we cherry pick everything. We don't engage in a whole album. That said, I think music has changed to a point where it's such a crowded space that you have to get your message across very quickly. And albums don't, as a whole, contain... a whole concept or a whole package of great songs. I mean, Ziggy Stardust, every song is, and recorded like within three takes, it's, it's so vibrant. Um, but today I think people want that. They, they, they cherry pick. I mean, I listen to things on iTunes and you'll find that there's one or two songs that are great. The rest are pretty mediocre, but you can just buy that one and that one. And of course, as it got condensed to CD, it then, you know, it was a smaller, less tactile element, and now it's gone online. You've lost that whole experience. So, yeah, it was important. The visuals, and I think they understood that, that that was part of the selling process. You were selling the whole concept of sound and visuals. And then several times over the next decade, Bowie reached out to ask Duffy to photograph album covers quite regularly. Can you just wrap up a brief summation of of each of those for us? In uh, 75, 
he was commissioned by the Sunday Times to do several features across the US. And one of those features was to cover the man who fell to earth. And there's a series of pictures that Duffy shot with David at White Sands, New Mexico, which were never published in, in, in the Sunday Times, which I think for me are some of the best pictures Duffy's taken of, of David. And, and I think, you know, being a photographer, I know how difficult, or the, really the chances Duffy took on that. I mean, today everyone's got a digital camera, you take a picture, you can see if it's worked. Um, David was late, D David agreed to do these pictures, but he was late out of the starting blocks and they didn't get out of Santa Fe until late in the afternoon. And it's a long drive down to White Sands. And as they got there, the sun was going down. Duffy didn't have an assistant. He didn't use Polaroid. He shot on a 35 mil camera and used a technique where he had, um, and we've still got it in the archive, actually, this switch block, which was connected to three small flashes on a triangular frame. And as you switched it, it would fire off each head. And he said to David, I want you to stand really still, really still, because it's going to be about a second exposure, but to move one part of your body. So he would fire the camera, open the shutter for a second, and then go click, 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 while David would move his hand. So you get in those pictures the multiple exposure. Now, I mean, by today's standard, that's easy, easy peasy with, with Photoshop. But the next day, Duffy flew back to the UK, didn't get the film process till he got back here. And I just, I just admire that... I mean, it could have turned out to be dreadful. It could not have worked. And the chances that he took... And I think all great art works on that level of you have to take chances and push the boundaries. And Duffy was always brilliant at doing that, you know. And uh, I think that's what sets him apart. And, and, of course, why Tony and David wanted to, to use Duffy. And, of course, that relationship then moved on to Lodger. And... Duffy's advertising credentials came in there because that was a technical shoot where it, Duffy shot the pictures from the ceiling of the studio looking down and David was raised about three feet up on a uh, steel uh, body-shaped um, support system. And then, of course, his face was attached with uh, wires which were held down with prosthetics to distort his face I think it's something that really needs to be highlighted in many respects to the, the, the younger generation or the new generation of photographers. When I look at a, a picture now, I'm really not quite sure what I'm looking at because if you think of the idea that on analogue film, it deals with a metaphysical condition of a moment in time. What was there was there. Whereas now, if I take a picture of you on my iPhone you ask the question, where does it exist? Well, it exists in a form of noughts and ones on a hard drive. But if you email that to your colleague and he retouches the colour of your shirt and then sends it to another colleague and puts a Caribbean background in, in, in there and then sends it to me and I look at it, I really don't know what I'm looking at because it's, you've, you've kind of increased the envelope of believability. So going back, a lot of effort, a lot of time, and understanding, you know, skill sets there of understanding your uh, your tools. Duffy had a great understanding of how what the tools could do and how to execute something to get that result. In the end, you know, if you look at his advertising work for award-winning pictures, the, uh, the uh, Benson Hedges campaign, for example, in the 70s, when 
um, the Conservative government said that you could no longer put on cigarette advertising a person. It, and it, it, the first series of Benson Hedges are totally abstract room sets. Um, and then, of course, all the Smirnoff work. All very technical, understanding how to set build, to light, and, and, and to shoot that. So, you know, that experience was all brought together in, in the lodger. And then, of course, the last session, Scary Monsters, was... And Duffy, actually, at that point, had, had had stopped taking pictures. David contacted him and said, we just, you know, one more session. So that was actually shot in my studio. Duffy called me and said, David wants me to do another session. I don't have a studio. I don't have an assistant. So we shot that at my studio. And then I got to shoot David as well at, at, at that point. The way that that came down was uh, Duffy had and obviously they both had a love of 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 art and painters and were always looking at anything new on the horizon and duffy had come across a painter called edward bell and he said to david i think you should look at this painter um he's quite interesting and maybe we could amalgamate what he does in the new album cover and the idea initially was that um, Edward was going to do something with Duffy's photographs. As it turned out, Edward decided that's not what he wanted to do. So the album cover is quite interesting because the back half of it is a photograph and the front half is is David's, uh, sorry, Edward's painting. David loved that and that's what they went with. But I still think uh, those pictures are, are very strong and they're interesting because the first part of the session where David used a fantastic makeup artist called Richard Shara. And Richard had, had had been involved with the David Mallet Ashes to Ashes video. He was a perfectionist. He was an editorial photographer. He was a beauty. I mean, he worked for Vogue, Harper's, all the top high-end fashion beauty magazines. And David had actually found him through Steve Strange because... Uh, obviously, David was watching what was going on in the on on, on the new movement of the of the new romantics, and um, when they shot the video on the beach down in Saint Leonard's, I think it was, Steve Strange was in it, uh, Darla Jane Gilroy, Judith Franklin, and an, another girl. Uh, but Richard did all the makeup for that. So then, when we did the session in the studio, in my studio in Little Russell Street. Richard was there and he put the most perfect makeup on. Natasha uh, Korniloff, who created the outfit, was there. And David said, I want to be made the most beautiful clown. The first series of pictures were in that perfect makeup. And then they decided they would just get a cloth and mess the whole makeup up and scrub it up on his face. So it was kind of two halves to that session, really. And they both work in different ways but I think that period from 72 to 1980 is what a lot of people would consider the golden period I mean I know every Bowie fan's got their own and funnily enough a friend of mine who's a complete Bowie lunatic I said to him recently uh, when we were away I said what's your favorite album he said Diamond Dogs I said John you're kidding me out of all the albums I never would have thought but everyone's got their own their own thing you know Chris Duffy, recalling how his father Brian took the now legendary photograph that is the centrepiece of the iconic Aladdin Sane album cover. 
And all of the details for the Aladdin Sane exhibitions at the moment are available on the Duffy Archive website. That's duffyarchive.com. And there are some great pieces of memorabilia from the Aladdin Sane era on the Main Man Label website, along with a huge collection of other historic documents, including articles, telexes, letters and production notes, many of them never seen before, that we're adding to the Main Man Label website each week. It's a great record of a very exciting period in rock history. That's at mainmanlabel.com. And on the website, you can also check out the other episodes in the Main Man series. I'm Des Shaw, and this is a Zinc Media MM Tech production. Thanks for listening.